Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. This morning we're in Parshat Pekudei from the book of Exodus. We're finishing the book of Exodus this week. And so we're going to begin at chapter 40, the last third of the Parsha. And so someone would please begin at chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Place the ark of the pact and screen off the ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and lay out its due setting. Bring in the lampstand and light its lamps and place the gold altar of incense before the ark of the pact. Then put up the screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. Go on. You shall place the altar of burnt offering before the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Place the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the enclosure round about and put in place the screen for the gate of enclosure. Go on. You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it to consecrate it and all its furnishings so that it shall be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils to consecrate the altar so that the altar shall be most holy and anoint the laver and its stand to consecrate it. Go on. You shall bring Aaron and his sons forward to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Put the sacral vestments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. Then bring his sons forward. Put tunics on them and anoint them as you have anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. This their anointing shall serve them for everlasting priesthood throughout the ages. Then Moses did just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. All right. So we're getting the the order in which things are to happen. Uh, there are... Uh, seven stages of of erecting the Mishkan and bringing things in because the Mishkan is going to mirror what? What does the Mishkan mirror? The temple. The temple mirrors the Mishkan. The Mishkan mirrors creation. So seven stages because we have the seven days. Elements of the Mishkan all line up with elements of creation. There's lots of wonderful literature about this, um, which, which we're not going to look at this year, and, but maybe next year, because I think it's a wonderful way to really understand what the Mishkan was about. So it mirrors creation also in, and God said, let it be done this way, and it was so, right? So if we remember, that's exactly how the creation narrative unfolds. Let it be, and it was. Let it be, and it was. So this is definitely for the Israelites there. It's two things. It's a mirroring of creation. So it's a microcosm. It's a model of creation. Uh, And also it is a portable Sinai. They're not going to stay at Sinai. They have work to do, right? They have a society to build in the promised land, in the holy land, reflective of the values and teachings that they just received at Sinai. But they're not supposed to stay there and contemplate that and just hang out with God at the mountain. That, that's not Jewish. You don't hang out with God at the mountain. You visit there. But you got work to do. Right? There's stuff to take care of. There's a society to build. There are poor people like, to make sure get fed. There, there's stuff to do. And so, 
But how do they keep that sense of their connection to that Sinaitic moment? They take this portable Sinai with them as they schlep through the desert and bring it into the promised land with them. So elements of Sinai we're going to see in just a minute are going to be made manifest at the Mishkan, at the, at the portable Sinai. Um, I went to a lecture, an archaeological lecture at the University of Judaism last week, and it was on the Bedouins. And the, the man made a parallel <coughs> between the, the, the tabernacle and everything that the Bedouins do. How it's built is exactly the way the Bedouins build their tents, same wood, with the goat's hair on the top to stop the water from running in. And a lot of the rituals that uh, were taken with the Israelites come from the Bedouins, apparently. Well, probably they emerged at the same time. I mean, they're the same... They come out of the same ancient Near Eastern semi-nomadic pastoralist experience. Yes, yes, because uh, Moses was married to the daughter of a so we I don't want to mix too much terminology so I'm not saying it's wrong who are the Bedouins exactly from where do they descend all of this is mythology that Moses is married to Tzipporah who's Midianite are the Bedouins Midianites this is all Midrash this is all sacred mythology so it's not unimportant that that we have these old stories but Midianite Bedouin I mean it's all the same Culture. It's all that ancient Near Eastern semi-nomadic pastoralist culture. Yeah. Doesn't that make it more comfortable to know that there is a basis that the you know the Israelites didn't just sort of emerge from nothing? To me, it's much more than that. And it gains significance knowing that it has a better and con- uh, context. The Israelites emerged out of Canaanites. They they were Canaanite. So somebody pushes in with influence that shifts that culture. That If you look archaeologically at the material finds in Israel, there's no evidence that another culture came in and imposed itself on Canaan. There's no evidence for that. The evidence all supports that Israelite culture grew out of Canaanite culture. So one of the other things, uh, I, I hear you and I believe you, <laughs> was that there, there were three migrations into Canaan. That the one from Egypt was just one of them. That there were three different movements across the desert into Canaan. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, because it, it was normal. If you remember, the, the great kingdoms of the ancient world, the great kingdoms of the ancient Near East were this business up here in the north. Once again, you are exposed to my extraordinary artistic talent. Up here is Mesopotamia, right? Here's the ocean. Here's Israel. <laughs> it's, isn't it beautiful? And then here's what? Egypt. Egypt. What happened was that there was constant back and forth between the great empires. Who's on the way? Israel. So both as an opportunity for Israel to be exposed to lots of different cultures, but also it often meant that Israel got schmeist. (laughs) When you have a war and you want control of this pathway and you want control of the ports, Israel got schmeist. Israel was an independent, united kingdom for how long? 
Not very little. 100 years. 100 years. We talk about it as if it were one of the empires of the ancient world. It was not. And um, so it got invaded this way from the sea. The, the Thank you. The Philistines, right, came in from the sea. That was a, a big problem for David, right? And, and this was a major trade route and spice route. Therefore, it was always so that, that there were, and when there was famine, right, all, all populations move around significantly. And that there were three major, you know, migrations would not at all surprise me because it, it was... Yeah, it was happening all the time. As resources shifted, people shifted. And once, if people shift, they all had to shift. Because if you shift, you're shifting into where somebody else lives. So if you shift into where somebody else lives, they have to go somewhere. And they have to beat somebody up and take their house. And then those people have to go beat somebody up and take their, right? And this causes major chaos in the region often. And it's one of the ways that we date some things is by which, what cities get destroyed when, right? They look at the record of what city was destroyed to, to try to pinpoint, okay, that must have been the battle of XYZ PDQ. Question, I don't want to take us too far afield. Um, Here? we all influence each other, and the cultures influence each other. Did Moses have a second wife of African descent? So Moses is mythic. Yes. So we're not sure if there was a Moses. In the story, the way Torah tells the story, Moses had, yes, another wife who was described in the Torah as Cushi, a Cushite. So there's lots of discussion about what does Cushite mean. So I will be happy at some point when we're studying Moshe, remind me, that I will, I will take us into what's a Cushite. Okay. Um, and there's an argument about the translation about whether I am black but beautiful or black and beautiful or or dark or so people look at black and say African that Kushite is African other folks want to say it's just it's a dark skin tone like many people in the ancient Near East is, is that where the 60s 70s phrase came from? I'm not, not, not. oh black is beautiful I do not know I, I do not know Possibly. All right. Uh, where are we? Thank you. Setting up the tabernacle. So if you're going to set up the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is a mini creation, when are you going to set it up? Rosh Hashanah. You want to set it up? Hi, Richard. It's been a long time. I'm so glad you're back. Um, you want to set it up at the new... At new beginnings, right? At, at new times. You want it to be at the head of the year. Rosh Hashanah. When would that have been? What month would that have been? <laughs> Nisan. Oh, right. Nisan. Spring. The new year was spring. Remember, we have two new years in the Torah. We have the spring... And we have another calendrical system, like Babylonia, that was the new year started in the fall. And the Babylonians in the fall crowned their king anew. Resonate? Anywhere? Yes? So in the course of history, 
that tradition won out. Any ideas about why? The Babylonian exile, right? You've, you're now exposed to and living in New York. You're going to do things the way they do it in New York. And you're not going to want to go back to do, doing it the way they do it in Jaffa. Right? Okay. So a lot of influence from the Babylonians, and we, we move into a different calendrical system. But once upon a time, right, the new year, Pesach, right? Pesach would have been an incredibly important holiday, especially as relates to this part of the story, wouldn't it? Because they wouldn't be where they are without Pesach, right? That whole story of how they got to Sinai was right, the, the story of the liberation. Okay, so Bert, you want to pick back up? In the first month, excuse me, in the first month of the second year, on the first of the month, the tabernacle was set up. Moses set up the tabernacle, placing its sockets, placing, uh, setting up its planks, inserting its bars, and erecting its posts. He spread, over the, he spread the tent over the tabernacle, placing the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the pact and placed it in the ark. He fixed the poles to the ark, placed the cover on top of the ark, and brought the ark inside the tabernacle. Then he put up the curtain for screening and screened off the ark of the pact, just as the Lord had commanded. He placed the table in the tent of meeting outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle. Upon it he laid out the setting of bread before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the altar of gold in the tent of meeting before the curtain. On it he burned aromatic incense, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Go on. <clears throat> then he put up the screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. At the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, he placed the altar of burnt offering. On it he offered up the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. From it, Moses and Aaron and his sons would wash their hands and feet. They washed when they entered the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he set up the enclosure around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the screen for the gate of the enclosure. Without looking at your book and without counting, how many times did as Yudhei commanded Moses appear? Seven. <laughs> Seven, of course, right? So the echoes, right, are very, very Purposeful. It's very on purpose that this literary, right, style that lit, <clears throat> is tying the Mishkan to creation. So now we've got all the components. We've got everything ready. Here comes the climax of the book of Exodus. Here comes the climax of the entire story from creation. The point of creation in the Jewish story is what's about to happen right now that's the point people who want to look to genesis as a text explaining you know thinking that it's about the world coming into being are wrong genesis is the backdrop genesis is the setting you gotta have a stage and you gotta have curtains and you gotta have a set and you gotta have costumes or you don't have a show 
If you're going to have the exodus, if you're going to have the narrative of how this people becomes a people and what its responsibilities to each other and the world are, how it is we're supposed to contribute to making the world a better place, then you, you got to set the scene for that. That's Genesis. That's the creation narrative. The point of the creation narrative is to have this replica of creation. It's not unrelated. Don't, don't, I don't want to overstate the case, but... Right. But the focus is on this mirror of creation that the Israelites will take with them, but it ain't nothing but an empty tent with a bunch of furniture in it unless and until what? The cloud. Because what is the cloud? God's intensified presence. The point of the Mishkan is to serve as a lightning rod to draw down God's concentrated holy essence, God's kavod, God's presence, God's glory. It seems to disrupt the visual field when we have God's presence descend on the Mishkan. It is a visual distortion of the field. So, you know, when I, I don't think exactly cloud, I think a little more like, you know, when gasoline is coming out of the back of a tailpipe and you see everything through that, the fumes, right? That's a little bit more how, and maybe it's just because I've been seeing enough sci-fi that <laughs> that that's what works for me. But but it's almost like you know, like a distortion of the of the visual field that that you know something's there, but it's not it's not something you can touch or feel. God forbid, right? That would be way too close to what happened a few weeks ago. Yeah. That'd be way too close, right, to idolatry. We can't have that. So this is the moment. Did it work? We, we, we got the instructions and then we really, really, really messed up? Are we truly forgiven now that we've given all of our effort and time and material wealth and talent and energy and commitment to building this and everything that goes in it? Did it work? How are they going to know? They're going to know right now whether it worked. Bert? When Moses had finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) It worked. Okay. (laughs) Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on their various journeys. But if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until such time as it did lift. For over the tabernacle, a cloud of the Lord rested by day, and fire would appear in it by night, in the view of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. All right, so we're going we're gonna to celebrate with the Israelites. I marked one of these up. Which one is it? Um, we're going to celebrate with them that the... Hi, Bernie. That the Anan, that God's kavod, God's glory, descends and fills the Mishkan. That's by day. What happens by night? Fire. Ah, fire. Okay. So they see the cloud. Then nighttime comes, and what do they see? Fire. There's a Midrash that we're going to look at that Aviva Zorenberg brings that is... Absolutely amazing. You have to love the rabbis. 
Remember that the rabbis are always, when they, they do a midrash, where's the eraser? When they're doing a midrash, they're going to need a proof text. Yes? They're going to need something from Torah on which to... And there goes Elvina. We love her. Um, she's amazing. She's just amazing. Thank her every time you walk by her office because everything runs because Elvina's here. We need a proof text from Torah if the Midrash is going to have any teeth. If it's going to have any heft or weight, you've got to go back to Torah and root your Midrash in Torah. Now, ein mukdamu merchar betorah. Right? That's a rabbinic exegetical principle. Thank you, Elvina. Meaning, there's no early or late in Torah. What does that mean? Why do I bring that up? Why is that important? What does that have to do with anything? Thank you. It can apply, a verse of Torah can apply anytime, anywhere. And a verse of Torah, because it's part of Torah, by definition, relates to any other verse of Torah. Right? It's just a question of how. But if it's the revealed word of God and it is, you know, has all these secret mystical... This marker's terrible. Um, any, any reality at all, then... I did not bring my kit. So, um, so let's look at Aviva Zorenberg. Go to the second, the little paragraph, you know, the inset paragraph on page 492. Look at the last sentence. The last sentence of that paragraph. His shade, do you see it? His shade I desired and sat in it. And his fruit was sweet to my palate. Lovely. Lovely, lovely. What is that from? Song of Songs. Song of Songs. So we get shade, right? And we get desire. Song of Songs is all about desire, right? It is erotic love poetry that Rabbi Akiva argues needs to be part of the canon because it's talking, of course, about God and Israel. (laughs) Right? It's a metaphor for God and Israel, right? It was very descriptive erotic poetry. His shade I desired and sat in it and his fruit was sweet to my palate. It is very graphic. And it is very much about intimacy, right, and desire. I, I won't bother writing it because um, we'll just look at it here. So this is the concluding, this is the line of Torah that the rabbis bring as a proof text for the Midrash they're about to give us. That Midrash says... The cloud descended, right? Then at night, it became fire. The people, according to this Midrash, think the Mishkan has been consumed by flame. They rejoice that the cloud fills the Mishkan. Night comes, there's fire, and they think, "Uh uh-oh, right? We weren't really forgiven. It's not really real. It's not really true. It's gone, it's all gone. Everything we've worked so hard for. And we, we had this moment of consummation that God was intimately present with us. And now it's gone. And then what happens in the morning? There's clap. And that's what we're going to look at. 
this this uh, midrash from it. It's from uh, Hagadol. The first word eludes me. For over the Mishkan, a cloud of God rested by day, and fire would appear in it by night. When the Israelites saw the pillar of cloud resting on the Mishkan, they rejoiced, saying, Now God has been reconciled with us. But when night came, the pillar of fire descended and surrounded the Mishkan. Everyone saw it as one flame of fire and began to sorrow and weep, saying, Woe to us, for nothing we have labored. In in Hebrew, literally, for emptiness have we labored. Which we could talk about, couldn't we? After these last few weeks. All our great work has been burnt up in a moment. They rose early next morning and saw the pillar of cloud encompassing the Mishkan. Immediately they rejoiced with an inordinate joy, saying, This is testimony to the world that if they wanted to make such a thing, they could not. Why? Because of God's great love for Israel. That is why it says, His shade I desired and sat in it, and his fruit was sweet to my palate. So a couple of things that Aviva Zorenberg is going to lift up for us by bringing this midrash. One is their experience of joy after thinking the entire thing was consumed in flame was an inordinate joy. Before, they were just happy. After they thought the whole thing was destroyed, there was an inordinate joy. There's a different joy that we experience when the whole thing is threatened. Ask anybody who's gone for a biopsy. Ask anybody who's gone for a biopsy. You love life. You love your family. You love your friends. You love your place in the world. And then you get the diagnosis that they have found something. Then what happens? You spend the next however long imagining that it's all over, that it's done, that it's all going to be taken away. And then you get the news after agonizing after the biopsy and agonizing waiting for test results that it's clear. That's an inordinate joy with which one greets one's loved ones after that phone call, after that medical visit. There is a different kind of happiness, of satisfaction, of celebration when it's all been so close to being gone. That is what Aviva Zorenberg brings us from the rabbis, which I think is a fantastic point, um, that sometimes there is a different way that we relate to everything we're given only in the shadow of thinking that we've lost it only in the shadow of thinking that it's all gone. The other thing that, that they sense, that, they, that this Midrash, the rabbis sense and, are, and come to say, is that this is testimony that the rest of the world right, couldn't do this. They couldn't build this Mishkan. Even though they had the same materials, right, they, they, they couldn't do it and have this amazing experience of the presence of God coming as cloud, then as fire, then as cloud, right? They, it was something about the special love between God and Israel that allows for this to happen. 
What's fascinating for me, and I think for Zornberg, is that special love comes after what? The golden calf. This is not a special love between God and Israel because Israel is perfect. Because Israel deserves it. Because Israel would never betray the one that they experienced at Sinai, God forbid. This special love is between the divine and a people that screwed it up. That blew it. What did God just say at the end of that? Do you remember? He says to Moses, the character God says to Moses, get out of the way. I've had it with them. I'm going to make from you a great people, but right now I got to deal with this and I'm done. They're toast. And it's Moshe's intervention that stops that from happening. It's Moshe, right, who comes with a great couple of arguments. What are the Egyptians going to say about you? You don't want that. Your reputation will be trashed in this neighborhood. So Moshe comes with all these arguments and God relents. It's that people that God now has this special, intensified, intimate, consummated now relationship. Well, the other interesting thing I remember is that God said uh, to Moses first, hey, get down there because you're <laughs> are screwing up. So he apparently comes around too and recognizes, well, they're really my people. But that's not what he said. What God said was, those people that you brought up from Egypt, right? Um, even God agrees. The people said, this is Yudhavavi who brought us up from Egypt, right? You know, and that man Moses who brought us from Egypt, even God agrees at that moment, because it's convenient for God, isn't it? You brought him up. Sarah? I don't know if there's anyone old enough in this room besides me to remember a ceremony at Yosemite National Park that used to take place and hasn't taken place for probably 30 to 50 years. But it was that on top of El Capitan, they built a fire, and everyone gathered below for uh, a community sing. And someone at 9 p.m. would yell, let the fire fall. <laughs> and the fire would come down the entire mountain. And it made Today's reading makes me think that I must, I, I was very thrilled by this. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think that somewhere in my DNA, there is a memory of the fireball wow. that got reawakened. What a beautiful, beautiful thought, right? That that, that exhilaration that you experienced is an echo of the exhilaration that we experienced when, right, that, and that, according to the Midrash, it was terrifying, right? They thought it was all gone, right? And when you're dealing with desert and fire, you, right? Desert and fire, very bad, very, very bad. 
Because everything goes. Everything burns. Stop doing <laughs> <laughs> Right? Ultimately, that's, that's why it doesn't happen anymore. Desert and fire, very scary. And like we've said before, of course that's going to be one of the images used, both of Sinai, and that's what I wanted to say also, right? Cloud, fire, Sinai, right? Smoke, fire. Like, that, absolutely, it has to be present because it's one of the most awe-inspiring and in Hebrew, of course, awe and fear are the same word. It's that terror that's related to wonder, right? The two sides of that experience. Fire's got to be part of it. It has to be for the same reason, right, that you felt so clearly that this was like, like one of those things beyond words. You don't know why that affects you the way it's just like, whoa, right? And that's got to be part of it. And I think it stays, it's still for us part of it. And when we're going to talk about the most awesome moments, it, it's often including things like like fire. Richard? Um, well, two things that come to mind about this. In terms of the, uh, the fire and the cloud and sort of the heating itself, this is, uh, you know, we, we normally think of fire consuming things, and here's evidence that the fire hasn't consumed something. It's almost like tan- the first tangible evidence that the Israelites have seen of God's infinite love, in the sense that it, it, it can never actually get extinguished. It always keeps coming back. No matter what they do, the love is always there. And on the, on the theme of the sort of the, the second creation, that the Mishkan and everything is, and here I'm kind of being influenced by Rabbi Sachs's most recent book, Genesis is sort of all about how individual people should be. So you sort of get to the end, and Joseph and the story of Joseph and his brothers is kind of like, well, this is how people should act towards each other ultimately. And but you 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 can't have a society until you have like a perfect family. And so Moses, Miriam, and Aaron are sort of the first perfect family, despite all their through. And so the first creation, God could do everything by himself herself. Because they're only people who can create. Here we have joint creation between God and a people because only in conjunction can they form a society. God can't create a society. Well God could. But Presumably, chose, but, but chooses not, not to. Chooses not to, thinking that it is better for the ark of creation for people to have a hand in and responsibility. Society. Lovely, and this is why this is one of the reasons that we make a bracha when we make a bracha for kiddush. We don't do it. We say Bore hagafen, who creates the fruit of the vine. Do we say that bracha over grapes? No. Why not? We could. Ah, we didn't make the grapes. Who made the grapes? Who made the technology that makes grapes into wine? Wine is a symbol of the partnership between what we are given, what we don't create, and our interaction with it in such a way that it becomes, right, something terrific, if you like Manischewitz. Um, We say... The, the next bracha over bread. bread. 
We say, Hamotzi lechamin ha'aretz, who brings forth bread from the earth. Does God bring forth bread from the earth? No. God brings forth wheat, grain, bless you, from the earth. We make that grain into bread. Again, we are blessing the partnership. We're not blessing just the resources. Just, I don't want to say just. We're not just blessing that nature gives us through, right, what we would consider the divine energies that animate the world and we get this produce. It's not just that that we're blessing. We're blessing the union, the partnership that is what we celebrate most and what Shabbat is about the most. Shabbat is an oath. It's a symbol, a sign forever of the covenant, of the relationship between the human and the divine. So thank you, Richard, for taking us more deeply into that. And remember, Shabbat's here also. Mishkan, Shabbat. What kind of work is not allowed on Shabbat? All the kinds of work associated with building the Mishkan. They are completely dependent on each other. And you can read a little bit at home on page 495 of, of uh, Zornberg. I, I didn't want to go into this theme because it would take too long. But she talks about Shabbat and the Mishkan being in, in right, this relationship. She calls it the fiery dialectic. So you can read this paragraph she has, which I think is amazing. That, that they are very much a part of each other, that they inform each other. Mishkan, building, and Shabbat. Cessation, right, and, and enjoyment of, of that building, which has to mean you stop building, right? So one more thing I want to lift up from Richard, which is you said this is the first time we've seen fire be present and not consume. Ha ha. Ha ha ha. It's the first time the people have experienced fire and not consuming what the fire is containing or around, right? But Moshe, that's his call. That's his call. That's the first time he meets you. Hey, Vave is the bush that's on fire but is not consumed. You begin, the more we study, the more we learn, the more we see the beauty of that echo. That's Moshe's first understanding that there is this other essence, capital E, in the universe, capital U, that summons him into relationship. This exact metaphor happens for the people as one, of course, right? That the symbol for them of this presence that it really is calling them into relationship and it really is going to be part of them and in the midst of them is fire not consuming the Mishkan. Gentlemen? Uh, following up Sarah's comment, I remember the fire falling. Mm-hmm. What was so powerful is I was young and the fire seemed like something from heaven, right? And I'm wondering here if the uh, if the next generation is more affected by the fire the young people who see it. Interesting. Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> right? That right, that the next generation, the are, one are who more, are more impacted by that. Yeah. And and we it's know so, uh, that they're the ones who are actually gonna make it exactly. into the land. We know that the adults who witness this don't. They never get it. They're not impacted enough or they 
or they don't have the, they don't have the receptors. You know, they talk a lot about, you know, you got this thing coming and unless you've got the receptors to pull it in, it doesn't work. And it's like, it's almost like they don't have the capacity to be altered by that experience of awe. They weren't impacted enough by the plagues, by the crossing of the sea, by the revelation at Sinai, and now filling the Mishkan. It just seems they don't have the capacity to be altered enough to do what's being asked, which is to step out of a certain way of looking at things and enter into a different lens, a different way of seeing through a different lens. And that lens, of course, is Torah. And they just don't have it. You're right. The young people, they, they're the ones. I can picture a cloud, like over a mountain or over something. It's very hard for me to picture fire because fire is always something burning. It's always connecting to something. Right. So how, how do you imagine it being on something sun, without that thing being fuel? But yeah, it, it's, a, it's completely otherworldly. Right, which I think is why it's at the sneh, it's at the bush, and it's here because I think it is. It's kind of it's eerie, it's weird. It's like what? That can't be, Bernie. Question: Why the morning? That has a connotation of inappropriate. Ah. And, and the examples would be it don't seem like inappropriate children. So very, very nice, Bernie. Inordinate. It seems for Zornberg that the reason they bring the quote from Song of Songs is not that it's inappropriate, it's that it is more intensely intimate. So inordinate meaning we not use... Ordinary. Not ordinary. Right. Extremely extraordinary. Right? If I can mangle the English language. Um, and we use inappropriate often because it's like over the top. And usually that's not appropriate to human intercourse, a human um, relationship, right? It's not. But where is it appropriate in human intercourse? Where is it appropriate in making love? That is what she's pointing out, that they bring the Song of Songs verse because that's the flavor of what happens after they think it's all gone, right, is this rapture. That's what she called her. The title of her book is The Particulars of Rapture. The Beginning of Desire is her first book. Her second book about Exodus is The Particulars of Rapture, that this is a passionate relationship, that it is over the top. It is not normal how we respond, and that's a good thing. And Bert used the term um, otherworldly, and this is otherworldly. <laughs> you know, it's not anything they've ever experienced. Right, right. And it's not normal no, it's for not. the rest of the world. You mentioned earlier that in Hebrew, you use the same word for awe and, and fear. fear. What is that word? Yir-ah. Yir-ah. So whenever we hear that Abraham was a God-fearing man in your English translations. It just mangles the Hebrew. He's not a God-fearing man. He's in awe of the divine. That's appropriate, right? He doesn't, but in Hebrew, Hebrew understands that experiences of awe are always, it's tinged with fear because there's a relationship to 
the way something is so big and we feel really small, right? When those experiences happen that we would call awesome, we feel really small and everything else feels really big. And there's, a, there's an element there of terror. Ter- Something that's so enormous and so far from your understanding, I think, that also helps me think about it in that fear. It's, I don't know what this is exactly. And so that's a major discomfort. Right? Because our brains work by associating with everything else we've ever seen that's like this. That's how we survive. Right? The brain goes immediately through in a split second, right? Everything ever related to this ever that we've ever experienced. And we go, okay, I know what that is. That is a pink shirt. (laughs) I've seen pink shirts before. I know something about pink. Not great on me, but I have seen it before, right? So, but when it, but when our brain does that and it can't come up with anything, that has always been existentially, like it's been a crisis because we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to respond. Do we run? Do we fight? Do we cooperate? Do we freeze? Like what? I don't know what to do. And our whole nervous system goes hooey-wacky. And that is why these images are evocative. Or that, that's what it evokes, I think, is that exactly that. I have no reference for this. And that is the definition for our systems, our nervous systems, of terror. And a lot of times people want to talk me out of that it's fear, right? That awe isn't related to fear. And I just like, I've stopped arguing. I'm like, okay, if you don't want to relate it to fear, that's fine. Like that Hebrew kind of got it wrong, fine. But I'm not going to argue. I, I don't see the negative connotation of the fear that comes with an awesome experience. I don't see that as negative. Fear and terror are very real experiences for us and they're not always negative, which is odd to say, but I think that's true, that there are times where it's appropriate to feel small, right? I can remember we were instructed, we were in the desert when I was living in Israel, we were in the deep desert, and we were told to go and find a place where we couldn't see or hear anybody else, and we were to take some time to meditate, and then we were to journal. And like, I had a profound experience of awe and terror that... If I were to fall and none of those people were there, my bones would be lying right next to that ibex and I would be no different. I was no different than some lizard, right, that desiccated in the sun. There was no difference. I was that small and that irrelevant to the universe. That was terrifying and enlightening and empowering and a serious important corrective to how this is what I mean about that was a terrifying fearful experience and yet it was so liberating because the next time I got all over oh my god did I pick the right color pink oh my god what if she doesn't like it right it's like really really ibex really lizard really is it really that important in the scheme of the universe whether or not you chose the right blouse, whatever that means. <laughs> so that's why I just am not ready to separate, right? Or, or, or make fear bad. Yeah. 
The Baal Shem Tov. Mm-hmm. Talks about fear and awe. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting distinction and connection mm-hmm. that fear is extremely personal. Will I survive? There's You're all, all up in it. And awe, virtually none of you is in it. And I think about, mm-hmm. talk about parenting a lot, because I love it, um, <laughs> is that when you want to find out if you're pregnant, you have a little bit of fear, but when you see the beating heartbeat on the first ultrasound, you have awe. And they are, like, one fear is a mere <clears throat> crumb of the cookie of awe. And because when you see that beating heart, if anyone's ever seen an ultrasound, like, at six weeks, when you see that beating heart, there's none of you there. There's sheer experience. And yet, you know, if a meteor falls in front of your car, 100% of you is there and all involved with, will I survive? Nice. Very nice. Paula? What you were talking about, um, being in the desert and starving and dying, seems to me, and I, I can't make the connections and I don't know how to explain it, but it seems there's a lot of relevancy to what you're saying about aging and getting older. And it's, I sort of thought, well, this should be a class <laughs> in the series on aging. Uh, and the Wise Aging series? Fear and awe. And that going through the life cycle of aging, there is a relationship between awesomeness and fear. And certainly as one starts to contemplate one's own end. Right there. I mean, I'm not saying that's just about aging. I'm just saying in general, like as we, as we really move towards my life will end, there's, there's definitely a conversation there about fear and awe. Right. So I'm going to close with her um, if you look at page 493 of Zornberg, go down to the next little indented paragraph that you see, the, this apple tree, right? Um, she's going to lift up the fact that this apple tree, everyone flees from it in the Hamsin, right? When there's a hot, dry, sand-filled desert awfulness, if you've ever been in a Hamsin, it is awful because it has no shade, so all the nations fled from God when God gave them the Torah, but I desired God's shade and sat in it. So another Midrash, this is so Jewish. One says, I desire his shade and I like the fruit and oh, it's lovely. And, you know. and then on the very same page, there's a Midrash that says, the apple tree, when there's a chamsin, everyone runs the other way because there's no shade in an apple tree. There's no protection. So how does that verse make sense? Ah, the rabbis say, it's because we're Israel. Israel desires the shade that everyone else runs from. Do you remember the Midrash where God goes to give Torah to all the other nations of the earth? And they all say, well, let's hear what's in it. <laughs> and then we'll, and, but what did the Israelites say? We will do it and then we'll hear it. We agree. We agree. Now, tell us what it is we're agreeing to, right? And that that is their great beauty and their great, right? The reward is Torah and and how lovely. Um, And so that that's what it means is that there was a special 
tam. There's a special taste that Israel has, right, for this that, that no one else had. But do you remember? There's another midrash. One is that God went to all the peoples of the earth and tried to give them the Torah, and they would And Then God said, Nasev Anishma, lovely. What's the midrash on the very same page about how Israel got Torah? Do you remember? God takes the mountain and puts it over the heads of the people and says, would you like to accept my Torah? <laughs> That's the shade also, wow. says Zornberg. Turn your paper over to 494. That's the shade. The Midrash in which God holds the mountain over the people's head like a barrel. If you accept my Torah, good. If not, here shall be your grave. That is, the coercive aspect of Sinai is ironically described as protective shade, a perspective that the nations understandably find difficult. <laughs> right? The, the flip side of we are the ones who wanted the shade is we're a little... Wait, so the in the first Midrash, the, we're the last chance for God. And we came through. Everyone else said no. And we came through. But in another Midrash, we may be the first choice, but it's coercive, right? It's a coercive. Unaccountably, however, the Israelites are drawn to the imagination of Sinai, which to them offers substantial shade and sweet fruit, like Bitzalel in the shadow of God. They sense an affinity, an unmediated and congenial reality that initiates an apprenticeship. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? This idiosyncratic taste for the apple tree, the sense that they will know how to use the hints, almost impalpable, of what Sinai suggests emerges as a kind of gourmet sensibility. That someone else just sees a snail, but the French <laughs> see escargot. Right? His fruit was sweet to my palate, said Rabbi Isaac. There were the, there were the tw- these were the 12 months of the Israelites that they spent facing Mount Sinai, sweetening themselves with the words of Torah. For what is the meaning of his fruit was sweet to my palate? To my palate, it was sweet, but to the palate of the nations, it was bitter as gall. The effect of the 12 months facing Sinai is an educated palate. The sweetness of the Torah is not accessible to the uninformed palate. Any one of us could attest to that, yes? Someone hands you this and says, read it. Live your life by it. Really? Right? Most of us would go, mm, not so much. We have to have an informed and educated palate to develop a taste for how this is sweet. How Torah comes to be nourishing, right? And something we desire and show up for on Friday again and again and again. I want one more point and I'll, I promise I'll close. Only those, I love this, only those who have experienced all the fiery vicissitudes of Sinai, of the golden calf and the Mishkan will develop a connoisseur pleasure. Perhaps even an arcane delight in an enriched consciousness. The sweet fruit of Sinai ultimately represents a people sweetened, seasoned, 
pacified to a new self-awareness. It's not possible without Sinai, the calf, and the Mishkan. You need all three. You need the incredible experience of Sinai, the initiation, the hope, the courtship, the first kiss. And then you need the betrayal of all of that because we get scared and nervous and impatient and start grabbing and reaching for what we know. And then the consummation after all of the effort that goes in to trying to fix it and both parties being willing to try again and building something beautiful to house and represent and point to that and then God filling us. You need all of those to be sweetened, to be seasoned, to be pacified to a new self-awareness. May it be. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.